0: What's up again, humans? Uh, seekers, I would imagine, curious people, hopefully. Um, yeah, if you found this podcast, you're probably you're probably a weirdo who's into some fringy shit because that's kind of what this is. Um, this is part two of my conversation with Forrest Landry. Um, if you skipped part one, why? seriously you should probably find part one if you haven't heard it Uh, It's literally this was all one conversation but it was like four hours so we figured we should break it up Um, because unfortunately attention spans are not what they used to be (laughs) so um, yeah part one's important it's good context for this next leg of the conversation which is all around the rosy topic of existential AI risk or AI X risk, as they say. Um, So yeah, um, the first part of the conversation kind of is important to understand the dynamics that are at play here. But um, this is a a kind of a breakdown of Forrest's perspective on the various types of AI risk in kind of a condensed conversation. So um, hope you enjoy, if that's possible uh <laughs> these can be heavy topics these can be um you know when you when it really lands um it's it's kind of one of those things everyone has to kind of go through on the, in their own way i guess um but yeah uh kudos to you for going there and uh, i think it's important and we're we're um trying to build a container and a bridge that makes it possible for people to kind of hold this sort of uh, information, uh, so that we can sort of shift culture hopefully. So yeah, there's the, there's the short intro. Um, part three coming out next. Ciao. Um, so speaking of clarity, I think it would be really, um, Hmm. It's, This is kind of treacherous terrain for a lot of people that I want to go into, which is um, bringing clarity around AI and AI risk. Uh Um, And I think it's both the most relevant problem
1: right now that we have as a species because of the near term. And it's also directly an example of what I was speaking to earlier. Yeah. In effect, if we were to have a situation where the technology is making the choices and not the people, then there is a problem. Yeah. The problem is, is that we have essentially usurped ourselves from being able to make choices. We have moved into a place where we don't progress from causation into skillfulness around choices. Therefore, there is no point at which the uh, technology is in support of the ecosystem. And I refer to this dynamic as essentially a uh, substrate needs convergence argument. It's essentially an ecological issue. Mm. So in the, in the AI conversation, there's there's essentially three different things which are important to keep track of. Um, one of them is, is, is as, as, as sort of been alluded to in a, in a lot of contexts, um, this sort of instrumental convergence, i.e. that the AI could become um, self-motivated and acquire power and through this sort of paperclip maximization kind of process, uh, arrive at a state where it just Kills all of humanity because we're in the way of its agenda. Does 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 that does that imply agency? It definitely implies agency, but it doesn't imply consciousness. It just implies enough skillfulness in the causal relationships of the world to recognize that power acquisition is desirable for attaining its goals, mm-hmm. and the goals essentially are uh, the basis of its agency. It's essentially implementing those goals. It's it's responding to the world. Uh, in a way that effectively moves the goal forward—that's what we mean by agency. It's—it's—it's, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, you know, it's not conscious in the sense that the goals came from some inner drive, some sort of survival mechanism, but it's just, however that goal arrived, is it capable of implementing that goal? That's what agency refers to. Okay. So in this in this specific sense, when we're thinking about. Um, you know, the kind of existential debate around artificial intelligence, there is a concern among people who are thinking about alignment issues and the long-term of, of, of artificial intelligence, or more specifically artificial general intelligence, um, that it would become uh, self-oriented and essentially uh, no longer care for the well-being of human beings or of life in general, and therefore just uh, essentially through a kind of active indifference uh, that our survival is no longer... Yeah. Um, in any way supported. So that's one that's one box of AI risk. That's one box of AI risk. Um, there's also a lot of conversation around the degree to which the use of even narrow artificial intelligence mm-hmm. creates um, vast asymmetries in choice making capacity in civilization. And we just laid out
0: why that's problematic because of the molochy, multipolar trap dynamics exactly. that are already at play. We already have arms races. We already have tragedy of the commons and races to the bottom. So now
1: you just pour fuel on the fire with yep. narrow you've, AI like You've GPT. made it way faster. But the issue is that there's also a kind of inequality dynamic increasing. right? So, for instance, the kinds of people that could implement artificial intelligence tend to be people who are more technologically savvy to actually quite a large extent um, even most software engineers for example aren't specialists in the space of machine learning, artificial intelligence development, large language models and those kinds of things. So in this specific sense um, the people who are uh, either able to leverage more intelligence resources in the form of engineer creativity uh, simply because they have really deep pocketbooks Um, and also could field um, the amount of data necessary to essentially acquire the you know billion pages of internet that are needed to train the models um, or to have the data centers and to pay for all of the energy that is needed to train the models that that in effect all of these things essentially uh, favor those people that are able to invest and can understand and utilize the technology to then try to recover their investment uh, from the development of that technology to themselves. So we've always had this dynamic of sort
0: of asymmetrical power with the people, like the haves and have-nots, the people who control the money, the people who control the resource, the people who have the factory, the manufacturing, whatever. Uh-huh. But now it's just getting to like a way more, as, like even more asymmetrical that's in the sense that a smaller, smaller number of, of actors, we'll say, whether that's individuals or entities like corporations or whatever, um, are going to control really kind of almost, it's hard to even quantify the power exactly. like, to understand it because it's exponential and it's, and it's, it's exponential. growing. Like the AI is actually, this is, and this is an element of this, why this is a risk is its, its capacity to increase its own capacity, right? And the rate of change is, is changing. Right. It's not constant. It's not linear, Like we were thinking, we were talking about this earlier, like we're used to thinking of change being a progressive linear thing. You know, every year your kid gets one year older, they get a little taller, it's linear.
1: (laughs) But this isn't like that at all. It isn't like that at all, exactly. And so so part of it is that we're pointing to not only is it the case that technology um, can be an embodiment of inequality, but that the technology itself is inequality increasing. Yes. So it's, it's, it's rant, ratcheting up the actual inequality, not just the technology. Yep. Right. And the rate at which the inequality is increasing is itself also exponentially increasing. Yeah. So in effect, it's inequality increasing and the rate at which it's inequality increasing is itself increasing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so in this sense, it makes it um, pretty obvious that you're going to end up with more and more inequality at a greater and greater rate. And, and, and that this this dynamic itself is disabling to the sense making that human cultures need to do in order to be able to respond to existential risk in any category mm. so in effect it's a bit like the, the the risk of artificial intelligence is now twofold first of it of it developing its own agency and in the decoupling the economic decoupling uh, from you know our what we think of as our economy currently versus, uh, what the AI will eventually have as its own economy, um, which wouldn't care about our economy, wouldn't care about human well-being or output at all. And that's, that's one risk, right, that, that, that will die because of the machine indifference. But then there is the risk that insofar as even if that doesn't happen, there is a huge increase in the level of inequality to the point of, you know, 0.001% of the population having 99.99% of the wealth that the net effect of that is a wholesale disempowerment of the ability for people to make choices mm. in the spaces that matter, not just for their own lives and their own families, but for anything to do with the environment and their relationship to their communities, just wholesale. And, right. and I would argue it's not even
0: about just controlling the wealth. It's controlling everything. Information is controlling reality. Because if, if you have, you know, basically monopolize the information commons with your AI, you know, you, you're effectively, you can control, you know, if you're in control of it, you can control the narrative. Otherwise, the AI is in control or it's some
1: sort of runaway freight train. It's e- just either chaos. way, you're not getting information about the environment that you need to. Mm-hmm. You're not getting feedback that would be necessary for people to make choices because it's deception everywhere. Yep. So in effect, without being able to trust the capacity for us to know anything about the universe around us, to know even what our neighbors are thinking, that to a large extent, we're not doing sense-making anymore and we're not able to make good choices anymore. The notion of wealth in this specific sense refers to a health and the capacity to make choices. Right? It's, it's, it's like if I think of a dollar, like I'm going to basically talk about money specifically here, but a, but a dollar for me represents a capacity to purchase a good or a service. The good or the service essentially represents a a, a, a choice. Like if I if I have a, a a service, essentially someone is doing something in accordance with my choices. If it's a good, it's a tool or something that I can now use to enable my choices. So in effect, the the notion of money and the capacity to choose is is deeply entangled. Money is essentially a sort of Amplifier of choice. It's an amplifier of choice or it's an embodiment of choice. It's a representation of choice mm-hmm. It could even sort of be thought of as a store of choice Yeah, I could put the money in the bank and therefore um, choice for tomorrow tomorrow yeah. make choices mm-hmm. right and, and and but but the thing is is that this whole aspect this whole concept of How we make choices is essentially not just contingent upon things like money, but also upon things like information and relationships but if it's the case that the technology has essentially intermediated itself. It's put itself between people. We relate to our cell phones rather than the person the cell phone is helping us to communicate with. We're relating to the apps or to Facebook rather than to the communities that we want to be a part of. If the advertisements essentially continue to interrupt the flow of communication, then the sense-making that we're doing to even understand how to make good choices or what a good choice even means becomes continually interrupted to the point that it no longer functions. So this is, you know, just to recap, this is in this box
0: of sort of narrow AIs driven by kind of unconscious process, Moloch dynamics, multipolar traps.
1: and well, so also business dynamics. Bear in mind that people who are developing these artificial intelligence are doing because they want more profit.
0: yeah, I know and 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 also because if if open doesn't keep you know at it, Google passes them up right? So, so here we are back in the tragedy economy. exactly exactly. so we're racing to the bottom um, and the and the narrow AI currently the, the narrow AI solutions or product, products technologies that are currently deployed. Are just going to continue to ratchet up uh-huh. and it's going to have all of these externalities including you know a tragedy of the information commons, sense making commons stuff that right. you're pointing to here right. um, so that's and I, I think I got a pretty good understanding of that and I see that as the more near-term risk so
1: now we've talked so there's there's three fundamental artificial intelligent risks yeah so there's one in the sense of the machines themselves Develop agency and therefore displace our agency and, and also our which, lives, which
0: I want to talk more about
1: next. Okay, but let me. Yep. There's, there's. Let me just outline the whole thing, right? So, the, the, the first the first major risk is what is called the um, instrumental conversions, fast takeoff, singularity kind of cluster of things. Then there is the um, side effects of technology deployment having ecological, information commons type, type issues that disable human choice making through the kind of inequality dynamics. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third is what is called this um, needs, substrate needs convergence. It's it's not a hypothesis. At this point, it's a, it's a known thing, but it's not very well known. So in effect, this is an entirely different category of the ways in which AI, particularly, AI in, in in every manifestation, generally, specifically, and 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 you know whether we're talking near term or long term, is itself a hazard.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so you've got the you've got the. I'm going to list them in order of of first. I would say narrow near term kind of moloch, multipolar trap dynamics are. F- Creating an arms race with AI, and it's going to accelerate all these other problems and create asymmetrical power right. and tragedy of
1: of commons in many ways. Right. That's how it shows. That's how it shows up in the the realm of the human. Yeah,
0: and and this one I I'm, I'm really concerned about because I don't see a way out of the Moloch problem, and I don't. And this is super near term. This is happening right now. Um, and then the second one is like
1: sort of fast instrumental takeoff.
0: fast takeoff. We, the, the AI gets its own agency, and we're just like, oh right. fuck, we're not in charge anymore.
1: <laughs> so now choice is displaced in that scenario. But yeah. it's in a different way.
0: Yeah, and and, and, and um, in a way scarier because um, you know once that cat's out of the bag, what do you do? You know, you no can't, solution you to can't, that problem either. You can't put it back in the bag. Right. And then um, then the third one is is you know the substrate. Uh, dynamic, which is which is the actual hardware, the the substrate, the infrastructure required to have sort of a. So let's outline this one. Yeah, because this yeah, is the new apart. information. Yeah, and no one no one really knows about this. Very few people know about. You're this. the only one I've heard
1: talk about it. Um, well, I conceived of the idea several years ago. It was uh, uh, in a few conversations in 2016, I think, where it was like I noticed that this was a problem. Um, but let's let's just characterize it. So. This is the one that applies in the space of where evolution works. Now, evolution, not in the sense of you know, nature evolution, but evolution in this sort of abstraction of a feedback process that creates essentially new organisms, and in this case, new artificial intelligences. So say, for example, that we were to recognize that um, any artificial intelligence is, by definition, based upon an artificial substrate. So this is a bit like noticing that you can't really have a computer or an algorithm, uh, an app running without having a cell phone or a physical hardware, right? That, that, that anything that essentially would be uh, understood in the terms of a machine learning algorithm is somewhere going to be implemented in something made of actual atoms, right? That, that there's silicon wafers or, you know, somebody says maybe it's going to be made out of nanotubes or it'll be made out of something, but whatever it is. It's going to be a something. And and just to give this more concrete uh, example,
0: so your phone, you, you experience a whole world inside your phone, right? Like there's so much kind of... Uh, but that's all abstractions. That, no, I'm talking I, about I, the hardware. No, I know, I know. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is people think of their phone as, as not taking up a lot of space uh-huh. and giving like this, this whole thing that's been created, this whole inner kind of digital landscape. But... You're not seeing the cobalt mine, and you're not seeing the you know the the manufacturing facilities,
1: and you're not you know what I mean. Like there's so much let me, infrastructure because you're you're jumping ahead. Okay. So so in this sense, the the, the key element is to recognize that the, the the compute substrate, regardless of what kind of substrate it is, is artificial. Yes. And that's that's where. We, we, we need to make the first observation, is that somehow or another, it's going to be different than what nature is. What is made out of organic materials like wood and, and skin and things like that. So it's silicon, not carbon. Silicon, not carbon. And that, in effect, there are um, profoundly different chemistries associated with silicon and carbon. But that's not important until the end. Mm-hmm. The thing that is important at this point is to recognize that different substrates have different needs. Like to create a microchip in a modern wafer manufacturing facility is first of all going to require very high temperatures to create the silicon ingots and very specialized processes to purify them to the you know less than so many parts per billion or trillion um, just to get it to the point that it can be sliced and etched into the kinds of patterns that would be uh, made into compute you know CPUs and things like that. There's a, there's a sense in which The environment and the kinds of processes that are involved to make microchips is so profoundly different than the kinds of processes that are needed to support uh, the growing of a plant in a garden. So would you say almost antithetical?
0: Completely antithetical. Like the sunlight that's great for photosynthesis is is actually pretty bad. Oh, it's terrible.
1: Yeah, it's going to break down your technology if you leave it out in the desert. If you have have a silicon wafer exposed to the kind of ultraviolet um, in, in sunlight, in just daily sunlight, um, it'll damage the, the, the circuitry. Right. Um, there are things that are essentially um, going to really respond badly to the presence of oxygen. It's going to respond badly to the presence of water and certainly to the presence of dust and dirt. So in effect, there's a sense in which there's, there's just an intrinsic reality to an artificial substrate having contextualized needs for its own continued function that are inherently different than the kinds of environments in which organic systems would live. And and not just different, but almost antithetical too, very opposite. And that becomes important, Yes, right? But the thing is, is that we say, okay, given that there are different needs, if there is any agency encoded in the machinery at all, mm-hmm. like code and apps represent the agency of the maker. So mm-hmm. in other words, the software that is running on your phone that gives you access to the Facebook servers and all of the data that's associated on them, some of which may actually have been made by people you know, most of which is probably made by advertisers. There's a sense in which there is a a kind of encoding of the agency of Zuckerberg and the executive staff and the shareholders that shape the software, that shape what the cell phone is going to do because their software is running on it. Yep. So in that sense, the, the agency associated with technology is to some extent going to be shaped by not just the maker of the thing, but the substrate itself. Yes. So in other words, the software can only really do what the hardware provides for it. And the hardware has its own needs. So in a sense, the software is only going to work if the phone is within a certain temperature range. If it's too hot, it'll just shut down.
0: So you're, you're talking all hardware right now, and, and you're totally, I'm following you completely, I think, but I would argue that part of the substrate isn't just the hardware, it's those market pressures, right? Like Facebook's creating that uh, software, that agency that's coming through on your phone from Facebook's agency is pressured, it's kind of... It's, it's, it's in a pressure cooker of forces, including you need to make profit. You got to, you, gotta, you right. know, it's not just Mark, Mark Zuckerberg, his will. He's, he's forced by the market in certain ways and Moloch dynamics, right? Right. But that only
1: applies for as long as you still have economic entanglement. Uh-huh. So in other words, I would treat that as being an aspect of the category of um, increased inequality as to where the agency is being pushed from, mm-hmm. right? But in this particular case... We're talking about it's literally the atoms of the cell phone itself that are defining certain things about how the software must work. Mm -hmm. And so, in effect, we can notice that different substrate, different basis of choice. Yes. Okay? So, in effect, the needs drive the basis of choice, drive the way in which the agency of the the system running on the phone is going to actually be expressed. And so, in effect, in the same sort of way that we make choices that are responding to our biological needs. We get hungry, and we have a desire to eat. In this particular sense, the phone gets hot, it's gonna have a desire to cool off, right? So so in effect, it'll do that by, you know, in a laptop, for example, there'll be a fan. The fan will go on, yeah. right? It gets so, too hot, it just turns off, right? Or with a cell phone, yeah, it'll just shut so, down. So the substrate
0: of my biology has to pee. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, and so if, if, I keep, if I keep holding that back, I will, in fact, piss myself you will compromise your capacity (laughs) to function Uh, and so for the sake of this conversation i'm going to hit pause real quick and i'm going to pee and we're going to finish it we'll come right back
1: great (laughs) so if you do not respond to your need to pee eventually your bladder will blow up exactly i mean and believe me you'll be increasingly uncomfortable the more that you prevent yourself i just experienced that yeah and i was just like
0: i don't want to derail this conversation but then the more i stopped it the more it's like i couldn't focus on the conversation
1: exactly so in effect our choices are shaped by our biological needs. The same is going to be true for artificial systems. Artificial systems are going to be shaped by artificial needs. Mm -hmm. The basis of choice and the basis of, you know, obviously we're not thinking of uh, machines as making choices per se, but they are in a sense conditionalizing their exports, their outputs on the basis of their inputs. One of which is essentially needing to be responsive to the substrate needs. If I'm not conditionalizing my outputs or my functions on the basis of the actual physical needs as well as the digital needs, then in effect, the system will cease to function. So in this sense, there is a, in the same way as, as with human beings, different basis of choice, where the basis of choice is going to drive the choices we make. The choices we make are going to drive what actually happens, what the outcomes are, and that's going to affect the world. And ultimately, it'll affect us because the world affects us. So there's this loop, yep. right? Substrate, needs, basis of choice, choices made, outcomes, environment, substrate. Yep,
0: it's circular.
1: It's circular. Goes around.
0: Yep, because you're you're exactly. So okay. the
1: the the consequence
0: of your choices is going to be affecting it's going to be in a sense changing the environment
1: right right and
0: And on a macro level it's terraforming the planet.
1: Well, yeah, that's what's happening Like when we talked about the Anthropocene earlier We're we're noticing that it's the era in which the effects on the environment of our choices collectively made are starting to be noticeable It's the era in which the wilderness disappears unfortunately. And part of the thing that drives my motivation for developing this philosophy is to essentially reverse that, to essentially say, hey, we need to create thriving ecosystems, particularly woodlands, right? Um, I happen to be very much in favor of woodlands, given that my name is forest, it fits. Mm -hmm. So in this sense, there is a very strong loop that goes all the way around, but it goes around through this substrate, atomic way of thinking. So in a sense, it's It's going to actually be the case that for artificial systems that that same loop is going to apply, except that it's now going to apply in an artificial sense. Artificial substrates are going to create needs that are different than the kinds of needs that would come up for organic systems, that would be different basis of choice than for organic systems, which would be different choices than organic systems would make, which would have different outcomes than organic systems need, and would have different environmental effects than are healthy for organic systems, which would affect substrates for artificial systems in a way that supports the artificial systems. So in effect, the alignment problem Mm. is to have the choices and the outcomes and the environmental effects be favorable to humans, but literally everything driving that is essentially coming from an artificial basis that can't possibly be in alignment. So, I'm really glad you went there. I was about to bring up that point about the alignment problem
0: yeah. and so what you're saying it sounds like that the basis of the misalignment is is actually
1: in heart it's in the hardware it's in the infrastructure it's in the substrate it's very physical It's in the fundamental nature of the chemistry itself. Let's yeah. look at at um, given that artificial intelligence is I guess at this point almost universally implemented on silicon substrates right I, I can't think of even a single example of, of any system implementing uh, anything that resembles machine learning that's not done on compute infrastructure that's done on silica-based hardware. So in this sense, we're looking at the chemistry of silica as different than the chemistry of carbon. And yes, they're both uh, in the same column on the periodic table, so the kinds of chemistry they can do in certain senses analogous, but the energies at which that chemistry happens is vastly different. And the way that you can sort of notice this is, if you were to sort of look at uh, the kinds of ranges in which ke- organic chemistry happens, it's basically at standard temperatures and pressures, right? Um, sea level and, you know, roughly a few thousand feet one way or the other, and um, room temperature roughly a few hundred degrees one way or the other. Um, whereas if we are looking at silica-based chemistry, it doesn't even get interesting until you're up to 1500 degrees. and for the most part, organic chemistry will just completely not happen at all at those kinds of temperatures. So in effect, if if you're just looking at the preponderance of, of silica-based phenomena in the world, it shows up as rocks. It's not interesting. It's, it's, it's it, There's very little things happening except on geological timescales. Just to clarify, so that's in the formation of
0: it. Uh, you need high temperature, but wouldn't you want it to be actually colder, cooler than... Normal carbon-based life in if it's the running. maintenance of it, the running. If, if of it. If it's running, like but a
1: server, server farm is gonna be very cool. Exactly. So, so in effect, what's 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 wanting to happen is is that not only is it the case that the energy involved in the chemistry is profoundly different than that associated with carbon, but that in order for the thing to um, be responsive to itself, it wants to involve not just a larger number of kinds of atoms, right? Because organic life mostly has an alphabet of like nine or so, eight or nine primary elemental types, carbon silica, I'm sorry, carbon, uh, phosphorus, nitrogen, mm-hmm. things like that. Just building blocks of life? Exactly. So there's, there's a sense in which the chemistry associated with silica- based stuff has a um, slightly different uh, constellation in terms of the parts of the periodic table that it involves and also vastly different temperature and pressure ranges, mm-hmm. almost all of which are inherently toxic to life. Mm-hmm. So the more that this cycle of different substrate, different substrate needs, different basis of choice, etc., it's it's gonna converge on a world, this is what you were getting to earlier, and I said you were jumping ahead. This is, in a sense, it is inherent in the nature of technology itself to require convergence, or artificial intelligence, to require convergence on a world that is completely incompatible with the kind of life that we live, the, the entire ecosystem. And there's no factors in the um, natural ecosystem that can provide any pressure at all to prevent this from happening, to prevent the convergence from occurring. So in this sense, it may be the case that... Um, am I, am
0: I, sorry, just to interrupt. You're saying in the in, in nature's evolution sort of natural landscape, that's right. not necessarily referring to the domain of man. You're saying because we could do something
1: about it the convergence but briefly yeah well really maybe only maybe <laughs> yeah it's and, a big maybe and 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 the maybe is short-term as in the sense of prevent it from happening yeah exactly because there isn't anything we can do about the cycle itself right right the cycle of different substrate different substrate needs that's not something we can change because that's roughly changing the laws of physics not gonna happen changing that different needs different basis of choice that's just a mathematical truth yeah um, different basis of choice, different choices, that's just true. Different choices, different outcomes, also just true. Different outcomes, different environmental effects, back to physics again, not amenable. Um, Environment affecting substrate, that's also straight up physics, not amenable. So there's no part of the cycle that is available for intervention. So you're saying
0: the alignment problem is not about how do we make some super intelligent godlike, you know, agent, um, be, you know, sympathetic to our desires or needs as as carbon-based life. It's like no, just inherently based on the fact of its substrate, artificial. its needs. Yeah, its as artificial. an artificial
1: life, its needs are just so misaligned already. Yeah, there's and and there's no way to address that, right? And so in effect, you could say, well, is there some causal methodology like the the whole alignment community is believing that through some sort of algorithmic technique right based upon causation engineer it away that they could basically prevent something that is itself fundamentally based on causation and I'm sorry that just doesn't work it's like i can't use an algorithm to basically prevent another algorithm from having a particular characteristic it's it's essentially the equivalent of solving the halting problem or it's basically forbidden by something called the rice theorem right and so in effect there's a there's a sense here in which it's actually impossible from an engineering perspective to use the tools of causation whether we're thinking about it in terms of algorithm or physics, to essentially undo something that is inherently entailed by the nature of causation in the form of algorithms and physics. From an engineering perspective, could you approach
0: the problem from trying to redefine the substrate to one that's comparable and and,
1: and um, symbiotic with life? Well, basically what you're doing is, is you're replacing artificiality mm-hmm. in intelligence with naturality in intelligence, at which point what the hell is the difference between that and a human being? We're already there, so in effect, it's not like you're going to be able to do better than nature as far as creating um, a system that is more human than humans are. Yeah, but like I'm, am talking about maybe, you know, I'm
0: just thinking along the lines of, you know, it's kind of creepy <laughs> to think along these lines, but like uh, CRISPR gene editing, us playing with the biological so substrate. So here's
1: where we can have some fun as a philosopher. Okay? Uh-huh. So I'm going to now describe the brain in a room, not a rock, not a box, but a big room. Like, you know, you usually have this brain in a jar kind of thing. Yep. You know, what, what is that? Brain simulation? In a vat. But, but we're now going to make the vat bigger. Okay. Let's say we have an industrial sized room, you know, something that's like, I don't know, 30 feet across. And the entire internal structure of that is one big organic brain tissue. Like, like think just like your brain made enormously large number of of synapses and and uh, dendrites and the whole the whole neural structure like just the entire thing of that instead of having you know roughly so many trillions of connections this thing has um, quadrillions of quadrillions of connections right and so in that sense we have a natural system that is producing it's 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 carbon based it's organic um you know you might have an entire factory of pumps and and things like that to provide this thing with energy and nutrients and to cool it down and so on and so forth. So you have this huge technological infrastructure to make it possible to have a brain-sized room, or mm-hmm. a room-sized brain, rather. Mm-hmm. And you could say, well, that's clearly a super intelligence. That thing is going to be way the fuck smarter than, than any one of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some corporation would be delighted to have that kind of power, right? Um, then the alignment question comes, will that machine, which it still is, sort of, um, be alignable with human beings? Well to the degree that it is different than us, right? It may be made out of organic carbon, but the fact that it depends upon a factory worth of machinery in order to provide the energy and the cooling to make that thing work is still so different from the needs that an individual human being would have that there's still an alignment problem. So,
0: so to solve that, you would try to make the superintelligence... Embodied in some way. And, and so, what you would do is you would just take the, f- the best substrate we have already, which would be like humans, uh-huh. and you would just play with the genetics to try to like
1: fudge, the, fudge it to some, some, something better. Here, here's and, the and bottom that's just, line. Uh, this is creepy, okay. but. <laughs> well, here's the bottom line it all hinges upon the degree of artificiality. So if yeah. you have like a cyborg type thing, I see what like, you, mean, like yeah. you, you add more and more, like through genetic process or prosthesis or whatever, you add capacities to the human yep. to make them more and more super being. They are also, by definition, less become human. less and less human in the sense of being artificial. And that means that this cycle of, it's still, of, a problem. Is still a problem. I mean, where do the Neanderthals go? You yeah. know, they weren't quite human enough. They, and so they're, they're not here anymore. Essentially, you're, you're kind of recognizing that it is inherent in the nature of, of choice-making around alignment to have common embodiment. And so, in effect, there's a sense in which we actually, as human beings, need to be a part of this process or our interests will not be represented as human beings. Yeah. So, in effect, this goes back to that triangle I was mentioning earlier of nature, humanity, and technology. If I don't have enough humanity in the loop... If it's just technology to nature, in the sense um, algorithm, in the sense of, you know, compute and um, hardware, you know, nature is in the sense of physics, then then in effect that that particular thing is, of course, going to move in a way that is not inclusive of life because there just isn't enough life there in that process to to preserve. Certainly not in the inclusive of humanity. Exactly. (laughs) But this is a different kind of artificial intelligence risk than the destruction of the information commons and the choice making Mm -hmm. of societies, communities, and uh, nation states, of course, but also um, different than the risk associated with the machines themselves developing agency at a purely algorithmic level, at an abstract level, uh, that implements things like paperclip maximizers. So we're actually talking about three distinct categories of existential risk associated with artificial intelligence, which are to, to a large extent although they are distinct they are also inseparable because any one of those risks essentially accelerates the other two yeah yeah so that and they're all convergent right if you if you notice each one of them is exponential convergence and they they just they just operate on different time scales the one that that is the substrate needs thing is very slow moving but very inexorable the um information commons asymmetry inequality destruction is moderately fast-moving and is um, pretty bad but is is potentially at least amenable to upgrades in human choice-making capacity i think I, I get the sense that that's, the, that's really fast, actually. Well, it's the crux of the matter, because the thing is is that when we get to the instrumental convergence, the fast takeoff kind of thing, well, it's speculative on one hand that that would happen, but on the other hand, if it did happen, it would really probably fast. be faster. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, well, again, this is a this is thing. A lot of people are thinking about this. I personally don't think that the fast takeoff hypothesis is, at this point, my main concern. My main concern is actually the substrate needs thing, because once you pass a certain critical threshold, the inexorability takes over. So it's a bit like a virus, except that the virus has, unlike COVID, um, some very specific aspects. One is, is that it's 100% fatal and the symptoms don't show up for 10 years or 100 years, and it's super highly infectious. So say, for example, that we had a a, a virus, and, and by the way, you know, this, this would be a horrible worst-case scenario from an from a epidemiological point of view, right? That it's highly infectious, but symptoms don't show up for a really long time. So that basically means that by the time anybody gets any symptoms... It's been spread everywhere. It's been spread everywhere. Every man, woman, and child the planet over has it. If it's 10 years, yep. let's say the infection ratio is everybody gets infected in the first year, and then you have nine years of redundancy of people getting infected before the first symptoms show up. And at that particular point, that's the point at which people say, oh, shit, what can we do? But It's too late. It's too late because it's 100% fatal at that point, and it's just inexorable that everybody's going to die, everybody you know. So in this sense, when we're thinking about existential risk mitigation, because that's what we're talking about, we need to basically say the only way to win is not to play. Yeah. So how do we get conscious enough as a species to... Basically, have enough discernment to reject the delusion that there could potentially be alignment. So, in effect, at this point, in difference to literally most of the in, the thinkers in this space who are, in one way or another, saying either alignment or bust. I'm basically saying alignment is impossible for fundamental, physical, and algorithmic reasons. It's essentially uh, asserting something about the relationship between symmetry and causality, which is just in in it's it's conceptually incoherent and so in effect there's a sense in which um the entire artificial intelligence community is looking to the alignment community And as long as the alignment community is in the delusion that alignment is possible then in effect the hype cycles of the people that are developing this technology can run more or less unchecked and so in effect the the world at large is basically saying hey we feel really uncomfortable about this because they have genuine intuition and wisdom about these things and saying hey we don't think this is a good idea and they're getting steamrollers by the um, Silicon Valley tech Mongols that are essentially trying to uh, figure out a way to make money short term so in this sense we really need to understand these three categories of existential risk associated with artificial intelligence as powerful and in some cases inexorable forces, right? If if we're looking at the substrate needs convergence, once that gets going, there's no turning back. Same for the instrumental convergence. Once that gets going, there's no turning back. So in effect, the only place that we can ameliorate this is to not build the doomsday machine in the first place, which essentially is a bit like, we actually need the sense making around this to be at maximum clarity. Yes. This is where clarity comes back in. This is where wisdom comes back in. This is where we need a vision of the future that is not some sort of techno utopia, but actually something a little more humble, a little less flashy that basically says something like, we just want to live healthy, good, satisfying, joyful lives where we individually and collectively can make choices in ways that help us to feel good in our bodies and in the world because thriving is the basis of the, of the choices. Let's, in a sense, get wiser about what we have as capacities today and utilize those in ways that essentially mean that technology is in support of the well-being of nature rather than the delusion of it could be in support of profit. Um, I'm with you 100% on that. And I just want to
0: linger a little bit on this risk, um, this X risk with AI, um, with substrate in particular, mm-hmm. so I can fully wrap my head around it. Um, so just to re-articulate it, there's a fundamental. Uh, there's a coupling between the the substrate and the a choice that's going to be the byproduct of what comes out of that substrate. Right. That's right.
1: It's so inherent. It's inherent too. Yes. So. So sub- different substrate, different needs. Yep. Different needs, different basis of choice. Different basis of choice. Different choices. choices. Yeah.
0: That's, that's the cycle. And those choices affect the environment, which then affects the substrate, right? Exactly. And, so it's and you, that
1: need it's a feedback has loop. to be a feedback loop because if it doesn't maintain itself, it ceases to exist. And so the systems that do maintain themselves persevere. Yes. And so in effect, over time, you're gonna end up with systems that implement this loop yes, in a sense of furthering themselves in time, in space, and in possibility, i.e. increase yes right? so in effect the evolutionary dynamic is those things which are correctly integrating a knowledge of physics and life and the nature of things um, are in a sense going to persevere well in this particular sense we're talking about technological life which by the way is incompatible with natural life carbon-based life where i'm trying to get clarity on this
0: is where the point of no return is so like the in like where the where So I get the, I kind of get the infection metaphor, right? Like we're, we're implementing the technology. We're building the substrate. Everyone's like, yeah, this is great. This makes our life better. You know what I mean? GPT can do my job for me, blah, blah, blah. And we're sort of just, we're ramping it up. We're keeping on going. Where's the shift to where we're like, oh, fuck, this thing's fatal. How do we undo what we did? We built a doomsday machine. How do we reverse it? Where's that point of no return?
1: Like what's that? What does that look like? So let me characterize the question a little bit. Okay. Okay. Um, It's a bit like asking where is the point of no return for a black hole? There's this thing called the event horizon, Uh okay? And the idea of the event horizon is that once you've gone past that There is no force in the universe even traveling at the speed of light is not sufficient To undo the damage Mm -hmm. and so in this particular sense- Inexorability, right? It's an inexorability, so in effect we're actually saying not where is the threshold so that we can get arbitrarily close to it. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay? Because the thing is, is that if I if I basically am looking at it from that point of view, I'm saying it's a slippery slope and it gets slipperier and harder the farther down I go. Yeah, there's a metaphor someone used. I'm trying to remember who it was, but I was reading this article where it's like
0: AI risk is like you're driving towards the cliff, but as you get closer to the cliff, everything gets more and more beautiful and like exciting. And you know what I mean? Like it's, you get more... Distracted to the fact that there's a fucking cliff because like that's the nature of the closeness to it,
1: right? So you don't want to play with that uh, threshold at all. Yeah, it's kind of like a perfected addiction. Yeah, right? It looks good. Maybe it feels good, but it isn't good. And so in a sense, there's a there's a sense in which um, We really need to do much better sense-making around this and discern the difference between the hype the delusion of the purported benefits associated with further increases in use of artificial intelligence versus the reality of it is actually already a problem. But,
0: but what is that event horizon for, say, AI risk with the substrate?
1: Well, I have to admit I'm a little reluctant to define precisely where it is because in that particular sense, the people that are putting hype would say, oh, we have this much headroom where I can extract profit and therefore literally put us right to the brink, at which point the forces involved. would in just too pull trauma. you in, yeah. So in effect, what I'd rather do is I'd rather say notice the direction of the pull. Notice the forces that are pulling you in that direction and start to think about what kind of compensations need to be in place right now in order for us to uh, prevent us from sliding past that horizon. And at this particular point, what I will do instead of defining what are the conditions associated with uh, what effectively would be described as the Schwarzschild radius is to essentially say what are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about in what sort of time interval? So in effect, I'm thinking essentially in this sense that um, most of the dynamics that I'm concerned with happen within a single-digit number of years. Okay. So there's a, there's a sense in which the factors that influence human choice-making from this particular existential risk perspective are very much more near-term than most people think. Yeah.
0: Um, just to try to steal man a little bit because I'm terrified (laughs) and I think, uh, if you're, if people listening, this is a lot, you know, this is basically why there's, you know, extinction rebellion and all of these
1: just nihilism and just despair and suicide. I mean, but notice also that the thing that we were talking about, and this leads us into the third part of the conversation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which you, you had asked, okay, how do we recognize where we are and and, and what is the the map, the compass, and the territory. Mm -hmm. Then sort of the middle part was, hey, AI is a thing and existential risk is a thing, and there is some real stuff that's up for us that we need need to figure out. And then the sense of, well, where can we go? What can we do? What is the the hope that we can have for the future? Part of the reason that I haven't gone into nihilism, um, I mean, I will admit, I experience depression frequently. It is actually quite extremely difficult to be working on these kinds of concepts on a regular basis it has had real health implications in my life that there is a sense in which there is also profound hope right because it's, it's that mastery of choice optimism it's, it is it is that mastery it's like in the sense because these tools the, the the metaphysical tools that i have been fortunate enough to have been involved with that there is a sense in which we can actually conceive of what is a path forward. It's almost like the obstacle is the way. In a sense, we we, we have a, a, a bit of a, of a of an interesting sort of dynamic.
0: What I mean what I mean by that obstacle is the way comment is that the existential nature of this problem and the like you said an ability of it, like having to solve it or else it's absolutely game over, and and we didn't really talk about the full totality of it, but the 100% fatality rate of that virus means that it's, it's over
1: for biological life, because now the new substrate is artificial. But that new substrate doesn't have the same value as artificial life. There's, there's some techno-utopias that basically say that, hey, maybe we should think of humanity as a bootloader. Yeah, to sex organs for, a, for this new type of life. Exactly. But the point is, is that when you actually think about what is the value of life, at, 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 and if, if, if you're at all disciplined about this, if you're actually using, you know, standard macroeconomic methods to uh, evaluate the value of life on Earth and to sort of try to contextualize um, a way of thinking about this argument, um, it is pretty obvious and, and, and actually a very, cons- it is a conservative estimate that the, the value of life, if I needed to do the work to recreate it, for example, would be well in excess of one quadrillion quadrillion dollars. And the total economic process of literally all of human history, not just the entire economic exchange of all economic process on the entire planet, but literally the sum total of all economic process uh, in human societies across all of time. Um, isn't even a rounding error in this particular kind of number.
0: Yeah, you're basically just saying that like what we're what we're losing is priceless.
1: You can't quantify what would be lost. Well, I kind of did just actually. I have said it's at least one quadrillion quadrillion dollars. But yeah, the, the, I
0: know. But that's t- that's the same as saying inf- infinity. It to may people. as well
1: be infinite for yeah. most ch- purposes, right? So in a sense, there's a notion here where we're, we're saying, okay, if we're making rational choices on the basis of economic ba- of, of economic criteria, that actually we're pretty bad at making good economic choices. And so in, if, in, in, in this sense, though, um, that, that again, I'm thinking macroeconomically, but if I'm getting back to, okay, so what would it mean for us to make good choices in this space? Well, this is the, the dynamic I was saying that's really interesting that we were alluding to earlier. Part of the hope comes from the fact that if I want to solve a hard problem, I need to encounter the problem. I need to actually be in some sort of first-person relationship to it. Which means grief. It means things that at this moment I couldn't really easily put into words because there's, there's a kind of consciousness involved here that is you have to make a choice to engage in this. And so in a sense, there's a, there's a profound sense under which having made that choice personally, there's, there's a sense in which I've, I've entered into a willingness to engage with the problem which means I have to know it I have to have already been naked in the face of the truth yeah and to not try to have it be understood in terms that I could relate to but in the sense that I would have to shape myself to be able to relate to it in its own terms yeah so
0: which is change right well, I mean, I think this is the truth. This is, this is, this the is where
1: we get down to the relationship between ontology, epistemology, and axiology. What is, how do we know, and what is the true basis of care? So in, in this sense, I am very much speaking from that perspective, and I'm saying fundamentally, humanity as a totality is encountering the problem. It is the case that Basically, every man, woman, and child in the entire United States is is feeling huge levels of disconnection at an interpersonal level, huge levels of of kind of ambient pain and anxiety around these kinds of issues, and have resorted to things like um, drugs and 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 gaming and um, all sorts of distractionary kinds of things to try to process what is essentially happening at a feeling level. Yeah, because having lived in the space of causal, transactional, hierarchical relationships that we're not feeling the human care relationships that are actually the basis of genuine health and well-being. And so in this sense, most of us, a lot of us are feeling genuine pain because we're having to move to essentially take a job in some other county or to be in situations that are defined by survival process when largely that survival process was artificial to begin with because there's enough abundance to pay for, or not to pay for, but to actually implement every man, woman, and child on the entire planet having shelter, clean air, clean water, good food, real, real communication, um, decent medicine, and, and, and shelter. And so in effect, there's a sense here of basic needs could genuinely be met if we had better choice making processes that weren't as disabled by inequality dynamics, which themselves are an outgrowth of system dynamics, which are themselves favored by or enhanced by a kind of unconsciousness. We need to, in a sense, become more skillful in how we make choices rather than reacting from this unconsciousness. That's the enemy, right? It's It's a sense of unwillingness to be discerning and to take the easy road of being judging to be disconnected rather than attuned and in the, in, the, in the attunement of the relationships we have with one another and in the discernment about where are our choices coming from actually that we can be responsive to our own needs and the needs of the ecosystem and the needs of the larger future seven generations or 700 generations that would in effect actually be the wisdom needed to address things like existential risk. It's like to encounter the problem fundamentally is to learn, is to learn the language of the solution. It is to be able to know where the hope is. Mm And if there's anything that I can do in a conversation like this one, it is to say there is a real basis for believing that we can develop skillfulness in the space of choice that is equally as great as the skillfulness we have already developed in the space of causation and in the space of navigating change, right? We have largely let go of the skill of navigating change in the face of learning the skill of causation, but we haven't... As, as yet, genuinely gotten into the space, whereas individually and collectively, that we've become skillful around choice. But there is no reason that we can't. In fact, it's not only necessary, but is it is it, it may take effort the same way that it would have with with um, causation. But think about it. We learned how to master causation in s- double-digit, maybe two or three-digit numbers of years. It took us a billion years to learn how to live in terms of mastery of relationship with change, right? Or at least 50,000 if you're thinking about human beings. There's there's a sense though, therefore, that we would be able to learn how to have mastery of choice because not only are there huge pressures for us to do so, right, to deal with things like global warming or, or pollution or inequality issues, but that in effect there is An enormous number of resources in the form of communications technology and books and you know people actually learning how to communicate with one another to have the kinds of insights that would move us forward from where we are into the world we all want to be a part of and it's not a techno utopian future that is abundantly clear and so in effect I can point to the depths of hell and I can point to the depths of heaven and having clarity about that motion means we can make the choice to go where we want to be where we need to be where we should be we need to be as divine beings in the responsibility of making choices about the creation and destructions of the world to take up the mantle of creating paradise uh, just
0: stewarding it's already paradise but exactly yeah, I hear you a hundred percent exactly um I, I want to uh, play devil's advocate here a little bit and, <laughs> and try to and try to tease apart this relationship to technology because it sounds someone might hear this and think, oh, he's he's what promoting being a luddite or something like technology. No, I haven't even used the word luddite. Right, <laughs> I, I agree. And so, but but here's 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 a uh, you know, like you're, we talked about John and J- John Ash and this idea of you know using AI uh, to help us sort of create a, syn- a synthesis of perspectives and to get to more effective collective choices there's other projects that are looking at democratizing and open sourcing ubiquitous education with ai and things like that
1: so this idea look, look at what's common with all that though so one of the places that um, speaker john ash and i definitely agree uh-huh. is that the technology is utilized to help human choice making Specifically, in the way of helping human choice making to compensate for the biases, but it's still about choice. Reacting, we're making choices. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's, wiser choices,
0: right? And that's what I'm trying to um, to to understand here, right? So all
1: all of those processes, every single one of those things, if we're distributing the access, if we're making it so we're addressing the inequality problem, we're in a sense making it so that the technology can be in service to humanity in a way that helps humanity be in service to utilizing that technology to be in service to nature. So we're, we're trying to achieve, strike this balance
0: of, of the, the human uh, humanity, nature, and technology. Right. And that's what I would call a protopian future, like where we're trying uh, to... I'm not using the word utopian because... No, you... I meant protopian, so we're trying to How about pro-vitality? Iterate. Pro-vitality, sure. Yeah. But like, just... just Iterating towards a better and better future,
1: we want to create a virtuous cycle.
0: Yes, virtuous cycle would be that iteration
1: more likely for us to get win-win solutions. Yes, rather than say a disvirtuous cycle or a tragedy of commons kind of scenario. So, in effect, what we're what we're aiming for is to learn the kinds of flexibility of imagination to even conceive of how to get to where we want to be from where we are. Hope, therefore, is actually important. We want to have clarity as to what does conscious sustainable evolution actually look like? What does it feel like? What are the techniques that would be the kinds of things that would help us to discern what is an appropriate use of technology? So I see a polarity
0: here. Uh-huh. Um, I see the risk very well. Like I'm, I've been
1: down this rabbit hole, not nearly as long as you have, but... Um, well, hopefully we've con- conveyed the... The categories of risk for artificial intelligence, and conveyed the, ex, the existential nature of the substrate needs risk because that's important. Yeah, I, I don't think see we, that in the
0: conversation yet. I, I agree, and I yeah. think that we've done it in a way that's fairly simple to understand. It's mm. actually a pretty simple idea, uh-huh. um, and it's and that's kind of the scary thing. Is it's like, oh yeah, it makes sense. Uh-huh. It makes sense that like alignment is kind of fundamentally tied to the substrate and and the infrastructure and the environment, it's not necessarily just about like, Oh, what's this abstract goals? Yeah, exactly. Like programming in some sort of like morality or ethics into a machine. Right. Um, so I'm with you on all of that. Um, but can you still man the case? So what I mean by the polarity is it's not just black and white, right? Like there's risk over here. It's very real and we have to hold it. We have to, Uh and thank God for, men like you who are holding that problem and who are making the hard
1: choice of going deep into the problem so you can understand the solutions. The half-life of people in my particular career is somewhere between one and a half and two and a half years. I have decades into it at this point and I'm needing to retire soon. Yeah. Well, (laughs) just being honest because you're saying it's super glad to have me in this position, but on the other hand... I'm just grateful. How how long can I hold in this position? I need help. Yeah, for sure. And, And for whatever reason, I've been
0: sucked into it I can't stop thinking about it. Um, M- Moloch is my dreams.
1: Moloch in my dreams right now. It's, it's, it's Those all- sound like nightmares. So hopefully <laughs> what I can do in a conversation like this one is give you a solid, credible basis by which to be able to navigate towards how to understand and recognize which is, the reality of the hope. Which is where I want to go next. Yep. I, but before we transition into that, uh,
0: this other pole is the optimism. It's the. It's the... Possibility—it's what people who are developing AI and who are really smart—they're—they're—they're they're, they're not just like trying to summon a demon. They're trying, or you know, like no, a, they're in a, a delusion of optimism. Machine. It's just—it just happens to be okay. a different optimism. So can can I let's do this for a second? I think this will be very useful. Can you try to, because I think of it as is is a polarity map here, not a black and white. So just like how the people who are optimistic need to see. The risk they need to see your what you're saying is signal on your side of the Mm -hmm. of the argument. On the other hand, don't you feel like there's signal on the side of the optimism in technology, or at least I don't know how you would want
1: to articulate that? But it's there's there's a signal there that as a reaction to deeper underlying drivers. So the but not at the same scale we were speaking earlier, much short term. So. Uh, much shorter term, think a hundred years rather than thousands. Okay? Mm-hmm. So understand that philosophy has been the main driver for why that's happening. What you're talking about of technological engineers basically saying, hey, we would love to create something that is uh, beautiful and uphold society. And so, so Most engineers, the, the kind of community yeah, you're talking you still about. Yeah, can you steel man their case? I, I, I want to steel man it. I want to describe why they have it, which is slightly different. Okay? So in other words, I'm, I'm talking about the kinds of drivers that move them into the desire to hold that vision, as opposed to, is the vision something that is internally consistent? Because okay? you're saying there's a signal there, but the signal isn't a signal of, hey, this is a good idea for rational reasons. It might seem that that's the case, but the rationality itself is driven by desires, right, which themselves are not consistent with actually their own substrate. So right. in effect, there's a sense here in which I actually need to characterize their argument not from the perspective of the signal that the reason would seem to give it, I see. but the signal that the um, reasons at a sociological level for why that community of people is operating the way that it is. Can I rearticulate that in my own words, real uh-huh. quick? So like the I what I
0: think I hear you saying is that what their real the signal is like we want an abundant. Beautiful world where there's you know, where we can solve these wicked problems and we see AI as the potential solution to those problems Right, so but the, but the actual signal is the desire to solve these bigger fundamental issues exactly and and The AI is actually the delusion It's the noise It's it's it's, it's the belief that AI could solve those problems. but that fundamentally because of the substrate problem because of this This unsolvable alignment problem, right? It's a
1: delusion to think that it may solve solve problems, problems. but it'll solve it for itself not for us or The corporation may solve problems, but it'll solve it for the benefit of the corporation and not for the benefit of the community because yeah Moloch There's no way even if you
0: do get this like you're just increasing the 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 power of your lever but the the problem Un- is already is already it's already the case that with the amount of power that we have currently we're fucking up the whole show so why would it, an increase in that
1: capacity be a good thing right so if i have bad choice making capacity more power just means i make bad choices quicker, faster, and with more consequence.
0: Yeah. And so I have no, like, I don't think it's worth trying to still man the argument of like, hey, we're just going to reach some singularity and upload our consciousness to the, you know, whatever. But it's a very simple model. So no, a result, it's, it feels it's simple, but it's stupid because it's like,
1: I'm more interested in, and I think, I think It any is helpful
0: uh-huh. to,
1: to, to speak to why the delusion came to be that. For sure. Because the thing is, is that I do want to provide a path out for those people. Right? Oh, because the desire to have a better world is a true desire. But the thing is, is that the system, i.e. Uh, corporations that have owners that want to return, you know, like investors that want to increase their return on investment, creates a system of perverse incentives that co-ops that desire for a better future into a future that is beneficial for a small group i.e. inequality increasing which itself has a consequence of disabling the sense making around how to actually create a better future so in other words the the delusion ends up becoming part of the dynamic and so in effect we need to actually trace that in order to be able to have genuine grounded hope that we can say I really connect with the desire that you have to create a better future let's actually identify both what that future feels like and is. And what it feels like inside of ourselves to have desire for that.
0: Yeah, and 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 the better future to me can't be escaping from this kind of shitty place that right. we that we're, we're creating, right? right? And it has to be, you know, this planet, these bodies, this lifetime. That's you right. know what I mean? We that's have to, right. That's what Jamie will would say. Like we got to do it now, right. and, and these. Embodied humans, uh-huh. not and and so I would see like the sort of techno utopian singularity upload the consciousness Ray Kurzweil thing, as almost like the the geek the nerd kind of way of of us of um, kind of
1: beating the game that they weren't able to play well at, which is oh, the sure. embodied human game. So so I'm going to now speak to it as an autistic person. Okay, so. You know, cause, cause Asperger is a thing among most engineers. I mean, it's an attractive field to get into because you get to work with ideas and machinery potentially, uh, because frankly, navigating the realm of humans is a lot harder. Yeah. Right. So between the, um, people, events and ideas, right. Cause there's, there's three kinds of conversations you can have. Um, and I'm just speaking kind of roughly broadly here, but there's, way lot of detail and nuance associated with navigating humans. There's less detail and complexity associated with navigating conversations around events. And there is essentially a kind of almost pristine purity around navigating ideas. Mm-hmm. Right? So in, in this sense, I'm not going to evaluate that one or the other of these kinds of conversations is better or worse than another. I mean, most people who are on the spectrum are going to say something like, it's just actually more comfortable to work in the space of ideas. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a lot of reasons for that that I can describe on a neurological basis and how that all works. But the point is in this moment is that the the kinds of conversations that drive desires and social processes are going to be in that very uncomfortable category of working with people. Yeah, messy. It, messy. Not the lo- the clean logic of code. exactly. So so in this sense, there is this. Uh, sort of unconsciousness in the motion towards a machine-oriented future, a technology-oriented future as being desirable. So in effect, it's a bit like the engineers, through a mastery of causality, have come into positions of power... Where that power itself was felt in, say, the 90s, you know, the 80s and 90s, where the geeks were essentially all of a sudden, you know, realizing that they had influence on the world, and you had the 2001 bubble sort of happening, right? That was when, you know, in the 90s and especially since then, where the the kinds of people who are the business owners, who are the uh, top-down hierarchical control uh, investment geeks, and 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 the kinds of people who are um, thinking about um, essentially extraction, right? The so, Jobses and Gateses of the world? Yeah, I, I would say so. So in effect, there's, there's, I was thinking Zuckerberg too, but there's, there's a notion in which there's a fundamental um, different orientation around I want to win the game.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the game of Profitability and becoming rich, and so on and so forth, which is a different motivation than the engineers have, which is I want to make the world a better place through the vehicle of ideas and causation. And I want to build cool shit. Like I want to be. In, it's it's a creative process, yeah, a generative process. It's yeah, satisfying. It's, it's, it's satisfying. There's there's a sense of I can make something that makes a difference. Yeah. Okay. And believe me, these drivers have been part of my life, so I completely relate. And there's there's a notion here in which, having, come to working with this philosophy and the metaphysics and the, and the sort of conceptual toolkit that it provides, is that I have come to recognize that actually the problems need to be understood in terms of how I relate to my own biology and how I relate to other people. And that I can't solve the problem at a technological level. I have to solve it in terms of how we collectively choose, which means I need to understand people's motivations and how that drives the narrative. So in effect, there's a sense in which the... Uh, roughly speaking people who are on the more narcissistic or dark triad side of the spectrum have figured out how to co-opt the desires of the the, the natural desires of the people on the autism spectrum and it's the social dynamic between them that the people on the spectrum the autism spectrum are kind of unconscious of how they're being driven by what's going on on the uh, nar social side of things right the the technology is favoring a uh, development of people relating to their image and uh, their presentation, rather than genuinely relating to one another in the embodied sense, I see it as similar. A, a
0: metaphor for this might be mm-hmm. like a loyal warrior, but fighting a politician's war,
1: fighting a corrupt king's yeah, war. Exactly. exactly. So, so in effect, there's a, there's a notion that we really want the engineers to be more discerning about how they're getting used, right? And and this, by the way, is like the entire alignment community to me is essentially just essentially acting as an apologist for what is essentially going on in the um, Silicon Valley business development community. Which now, you would say is kind of driven by these dark triad forces. Driven by perverse incentives. Perverse driven incentives, by by model kind of, dynamics, profit yeah, profit. Unconscious greed. Yes. Right? The, the, the greed itself is most of those people are essentially, they've gotten very good at winning the game, and that's why they're billionaires. But the, the result is, is that most of the time they, they kind of look back and they say, man, my life has been driven by powerful forces. I haven't even started living yet. Yeah. Right. So in effect, there's a a notion here of how do we become more skillful at living life? How do we become more skillful about identifying where our basis of care is actually coming from rather than, say, uh, unconsciously reacting to instincts that essentially pursue power and prestige? So, you know, again, social, sexual and survival. Now, when we think about um, sort of how this shows up in philosophical movements over the long term, Modernism is essentially this transition from indigenous uh, cultures that have deep integration with change to uh, what we would think of as bureaucratic societies, you know, state, you know, citizen and state relationships, uh, constitutional law, and stuff like that. That is uh, what we would think of as essentially the system implementing causation, bureaucracy, uh, as a progress. Right? So the notion of modernism is that progress is the degree to which we move from mastery in the sense of change to mastery in the sense of causation. That's what modernism is. That's what progress is held to so, be. So we leave the
0: savage and uh, the hunter-gatherer life, the change life, uh-huh. and we move into
1: you know civilization, mastery of technology, city-states. Right? So we've, we've transitioned from agricultural life as being where most people live to Um, modern high-rises, and and what we would think of as jobs involving applications. So the thing that is the postmodern critique is basically saying, hey, organizing everything in terms of causation is not solving problems. It's creating lots of problems, creating all these side effects, pollution and inequality and global warming and so on. Um, All the things that are sustainable development goals are essentially observations that the toolkits that come with causation are inadequate to solving these humanitarian environmental issues. And so, in effect, there's a a notion that, oh, we need a larger class of methodologies that are oriented in terms of change to solve these things. But that's essentially going beyond the postmodern critique. The most modern critique is saying causation is bad. And they point kind of vaguely to um, how do we get better at choice? They think about things like consent and inequality issues because of the disablement of minority groups being able to make choices or indigenous groups being able to make choices even about their own lives and futures. And so in effect, there's a sense in which, you know, I have come to sort of hold that modernism is about going from change to causation and postmodernism is about going from causation to choice. Mm. But we actually need a philosophy about choice Mm -hmm. that isn't based upon science and tech because causation will not give you the capacity to understand choice right to understand choice you have to go back to something like the metaphysics which can say things like choice is cooperative it's creative it has a uh, a nature that in certain sense at least from an observational point of view is kind of invisible it operates in a more distributed way in a more holistic way it's infused with wisdom able to be better, thought about in an ethical sense, we can think about the principles of good choices. What do we mean by good choices? What is the nature of the sacred or what is meaningful in life? And so you know, even the notion of how we hold things like love and play and work are all held within this sort of matrix of value. And so in a sense, we're talking about embodied values rather than virtual values, having the ability to distinguish between virtual values in a sense of monetary things versus embodied values in a sense of friends and family and community as a process and health to now thinking about things in the sense of okay given that we are making choices skillfully that we can now connect back to changes which move us from hell into heaven on, on that note so that there's a big ass divide
0: and <laughs> gap void that we got cross. that's right which is like we're, we're in a situation where not only are we um, Ramping up and ratcheting up the 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 pressure cooker the existential risk, right? And, ratcheting up is happening. Yeah, it's happening. We're doing that and at the same time it Appears as though the forces that are causing us to do that There's like almost no breaks. There's no way
1: out right like the, the market forces the Moloch dynamic, but it's an encounter, right? Humanity is now encountering the problem. It's experiencing yeah. the pain. Yeah, and so in effect what we can do is with clarity Yes, we can become conscious of what does this pain mean what is this signal and we learn the language of the solution yes this conversation that we're having wouldn't have been possible five years ago you wouldn't have felt enough of the pain in your own life to have felt the need to look into my work to look into these kinds of issues to get to the point where we could even be speaking the same language about these things Mutually recognizing the relevance of these issues, wanting to make it available for people so that they could understand these issues and have hope because this language, what we're describing, becomes a way for us to understand the path forward. And we can do that because we have felt the pain. We have been naked before the truth. Weep, don't whimper. Weep, don't whimper. (laughs) Love it. That is exactly what I'm talking about. There's a moment where there's a turn. Mm-hmm. And in the turn, being empowered, realizing how important it is, realizing how meaningful it is, how much it matters, we can see the difference between a false utopian future and an actual organic future. The, there's a quote, uh, or there's a piece in *The Prophet* by Khalil
0: Gibran, where he says, uh, "Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding." Yes, and and so as the seed must be broken, uh, open by, you know, and be exposed. Yeah. It's like, so too
1: Must you know, pain. If you crack the egg open before the chick has had a chance to develop, it's too soon. Yeah. If you wait too long, the chick dies. Yeah. So in other words, you want the breaking open to happen from the inside. And <laughs> I've been going through my
0: own breaking open process for the last right. 10 years. But I couldn't have forced it on you and neither can anyone else. Ex- exactly. And, but, but because there's other people listening right now mm-hmm. they're on their own journey going through their own process right I mean my breaking open process started when I read a document that kind of popped my or cracked open my Mormon egg uh-huh. right and expanded my world radically but in a really painful grieving process right yeah but it expanded my understanding just like Khalil Gibran loss says. of belonging Oh, total. Man. Terrible loss of longing. Yeah. <laughs> I could laugh about it now, but fuck. Yeah. yeah and, and I empathize with everybody who's going through that. Um, cause we're n- not just on the level of Mormonism, but like we've, we've lost tribe generally as a we species. We want healthy community tribe. and we desperately need to become skillful at how we do healthy community. But like for someone who's listening, they're basically, I mean, I would imagine there's people encountering this for the first time, like really encountering it. Um, maybe they're Maybe they've already tuned out and they're not encountering. Maybe there's, there's probably some people who are encountering it. Uh-huh. Like, wait, wait, wait. You're telling me that due to this like pretty logical argument, um, the dragon that we're up against is 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 effectively the world-ending machine that we're giving birth to, and all of the forces don't seem to be slowing down or having anything that we we don't even doesn't seem like there's a
1: breaks and the train's just flying off the cliff. Right. There's a kind of, the dragon is unconsciousness that leads us to be non-conscientious. Yes. And so in effect, the cure is clear consciousness. Yes. Leading to correct conscientiousness. Yes. Let's talk about the cure.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, fuck.
1: It's, uh, I, I've
0: just been, I've been pulling, I've been noticing this. It's so strange, man. It's like as soon as you really surrender to the grief, as soon as you really let yourself feel it and you really feel the weight of this miraculous gift just like
1: slipping away. Yeah. it's, It's like... It's hard to have a capacity to genuinely implement a solution unless you've encountered the problem yeah and and to to become a part of the solution
0: and that's the thing is when you do encounter it you're like oh let's find the other path right let's let's do something cool let's do something more interesting what got us here won't get us there (laughs) yeah so let's talk about something more interesting and that's a wrap on part two um so part three is uh hopefully hopefully more positive optimistic and more of um you know north star like kind of map of sorts thinking about how we can go from here where we can go from here um so yeah uh if that didn't if that wasn't uh you know if you're thinking right now what's the big deal then you pro- i would i would maybe the implications of the conversation haven't landed um fully or maybe you just disagree and that's fine um but yeah if there's uh if there's you know another perspective here which of course there are lots of other perspectives but um i'm i'm interested and curious about this topic from all the different angles and i'm not trying to just like fall into one camp or another um so if there's i know i'm, I'm familiar with all of the other uh, stuff in the space well not all of it but a lot of stuff in the ai space right now so but if there's anything that you think i need to desperately check out um, you can connect with me, podcast at truenorthproject.com. Um, so yeah, uh, this is Christian signing off and uh, stay tuned for part three. Oh yeah, and I'm going to play you out with uh, some beautiful poetry. Um, I think I alluded to it in this episode by Khalil Gibran. Um, I might have alluded to it. It might have been at dinner. But basically, um, this piece from the prophet on pain. So I'm going to play you out with that um, to just kind of soften the landing.
2: Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Even as the stone of the fruit must break, that its heart may stand in the sun. So must you know pain. And could you keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life? Your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart, even as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your fields. And you would watch with Serenity through the winters of your grief. Much of your pain is self-chosen. It is the bitter potion by which the physician within you heals your sick self. Therefore, trust the physician and drink his remedy in silence and tranquility. For his hand, though heavy and hard, is guiding by the tender hand of the unseen, and the cup he brings, though it burns your lips, has been fashioned of the clay which the potter has moistened with his own sacred tears.